I want to say to you, church, what God does, He does in response to prayer. He does in response to prayer. Prayer is the means that God has chosen. Thank you. It's the mechanism that God has instituted for bringing eternity into time, for bringing heaven into history. It's prayer that God uses. And last Sunday, I gave you eight illustrations in the life of Moses of intercession. Moses epitomized a man of prayer, standing in the gap for God's people. But of the eight stories that I told last weekend about Moses praying for God's people, I didn't tell you maybe the most famous intercession story in the life of Moses. So if you have your Bible, I want you to just take a moment and go with me back to Exodus 17. We were there last weekend. This is that moment when Moses is leading the people through the wilderness and there's nothing to drink and they come to a place called Rephidim. And God tells Moses, I want you to take the staff and strike the rock at Mount Horeb and water's going to flow from the rock. And God provides for the people there. But even though God's providing for the people, Moses renamed the place. He named it Testing and Quarreling. That's what he, in their language, that's what he named the place because the people kept quarreling with each other and they kept testing God. And so God just answers Moses' prayer of intercession in spite of the people's attitude and their complaining. And then it's in that place. I want you to pick up the story with me in verse 8. It says, The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Now, this is actually the first enemy to confront Israel after they came out of bondage in Egypt. It's interesting because the Amalekites... Uh, have a history that is connected to Israel. Amalek is the grandson of Esau. Esau, you might remember, was the brother of Jacob. Jacob had an all-night wrestling match with God, and God changed his name to Israel. So now Israel, used to be Jacob, is in a conflict with the Amalekites, the grandson of Esau. And, And maybe you remember that story when Esau came in from the fields famished, and his brother Jacob had made some lentil soup, and he says, give me some of that soup, and Jacob said, well, give me your birthright as the firstborn son, and Jacob, or Esau said, well, what good is a birthright if I die of hunger? You can have my birthright, just give me the soup, and he gave up, he forfeited the privilege and the authority and the blessing of being the firstborn son. He gave it up to Israel. So now all these generations later, the Amalekites are attacking the Israelites. And Moses, he doesn't know, he doesn't have any part in this conflict. I mean, they've just come out of 400 years of captivity. All they know is we used to be bound, now we're free. We used to be in shackles, now we're a free people. The Red Sea crossing is a picture of salvation. And they just, they're out there just living their best life. They're just in the wilderness, they're serving God, God's providing for them. All is great because we have found salvation. It's come to us. And then all of a sudden there's these people that have something against them. Have you found that to be true in your life as a Christian? Like, there are just some people. Like, they just, they've got a problem with you. It's not even about you. It's about what you represent. 
They're, they're out there. I, I can tell you, they're out there in this community. I don't know if you know this or not. There are people in this community that hate me. They don't even know me. We haven't even talked. They hate me. The report gets back to me. I, I'm like, really? Wow, wow, that's offensive. Really? They said that? They hate me. You know why? It's not about me. It's what I represent. There are always going to be Esau's in the culture that, that have animosity toward Israel. They have animosity towards the people of God because they forfeited the eternal blessing of a reward with God for a temporary pleasure. And they see what you're experiencing, and they're going to hate you for it. It's funny when you see new Christians, like everything's great. You're like, they get saved, like, wow, man, everybody loves each other. And then, like, you know, after a, a little while, they realize, like, man, not everybody's as happy about what God's doing in my life as I am. You ever been there before? So that, that's, that's Israel here. They're just experiencing an attack from the enemy. People are just against what they're for, they're against the God who's for them. But look at verse nine. It says, Moses said to Joshua, come and choose some men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I'll stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands... The Amalekites were winning. Now, Moses, up to this point, he's always been a front lines kind of leader. I mean, if God's doing something for Israel, Moses is out front with that stick. I mean, he's like leading the charge. But in this case, God gives him a different assignment. He said, I want you on the front lines of battle, but I want you on the front lines of battle in prayer. I don't want you down there in the valley with Joshua. Send Joshua with the soldiers. I want you to go on the mountain, and I want you to pray. Now, now Joshua is... Many of you, you, you know your Bible well, and so when you hear the name Joshua, you know this is a guy that God's going to use mightily. He's going to end up possessing the promised land. He's going to have a book of the Bible uh, named after him. We're going to sing songs about Joshua fighting the battle of Jericho. But know this, at this moment, nobody knows who Joshua is. This is the first time he's mentioned in the Bible. All we know about Joshua, so just erase all that for a moment. All we know about Joshua is he's really good with a sword. He's a good soldier. That's what we know. He obeys his commanding officer, and he fights valiantly. That's what we know about him. But both of these men are vital for the victory. Both of them are key. You see, Moses can't get the victory in prayer if Joshua doesn't go out and fight on the front lines. And Joshua can't win the battle fighting in the valley if Moses isn't on the mountain interceding for him. And we could talk all day about, about the, the need for a Joshua generation to rise up. There is a time and there is an hour for activism. There is a place for us to rise up and to say something, to do something. But, but this series is not called activism. This series is called prayer. So I'm going to get back over here to Moses, all right? Let's be honest. The truth is we are far too quick to want to play the role of Joshua. As soon as somebody disagrees, as soon as somebody opposes, as soon as somebody rises up against the church, we are too quick to go toe-to-toe -to -toe and tit-for-tat in sword play with other people. 
But what we need, church, is a revelation of the unseen power of prayer on the mountain that causes victory in the valley. Without prayer, we can do nothing. So Moses takes his place on the mountain. When he lifts up his hands in intercession, Joshua begins to win. And he's like, oh, this is awesome. They're winning. They're winning. This is so great. This, oh, wait, they're losing. They're losing. Oh, God, help them. God, help them. God, help. Oh, look, they're winning. They're winning. This is exciting. They're, oh, no, they're losing. And after a while, he starts, he starts figuring this out. When I'm praying, when I'm seeking God, when I'm raising the staff that represents the authority and the power I have in, to do the will of God, they're winning. All of a sudden, it dawns on Moses in that moment. The success in the battle depends on prayer. We need that revelation, church. We need to understand that the success in the battle depends on prayer. People often say the pen is mightier than the sword, but I would appeal to you that the petition is mightier than the sword. The prayer is mightier than the sword. That's why in our spiritual battles, it's so important when we're in a battle with the world or with the flesh or with the devil we understand that the, the big guns, the heavy artillery, is prayer. That's why in, in Ephesians chapter 6, when, when Paul the apostle was talking about how we fight spiritual warfare, he says we're, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, we're, we're battling against spiritual powers of principalities and heavenly wickedness and the heavenly realms. And, and he says, so here's what you do. You put on the armor of God, and he lists all the armor. You, know, you put on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness, and you take up the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit and the belt of truth and the shoes of peace, and you get all armored up because it's a spiritual battle we're fighting. But then, after you get all dressed up, he says this in Ephesians 6, 18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Then he says, pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. This is Paul. This is the guy that wrote the book of Romans, the greatest, the greatest exposition on salvation ever written. He wrote Romans, and he says, pray for me so that I can say what I'm supposed to say. If Paul needed the church to pray, Lord knows this preacher needs a church praying so that I say the things I'm supposed to say. He said in verse 20, for which I am an ambassador, this gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Why? What happens if we don't pray? Well, it's simple. We lose the battle. We lose the battle. All of our organization, all of our planning, all of our strategy, we lose the battle. Even if you're wearing the full armor of God. Prayer is not just another tool in our weaponry. Prayer is the battle. Moses gives us this picture of what it looks like to stand in the gap for people. Look at the next verse in Exodus 17. It says in verse 12, when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. 
I love this picture. This is a picture of the power of agreement. With Aaron and her on both sides of Moses. Moses was, was able to endure in prayer for one reason. He had some prayer partners. He was able to press through to the victory because he didn't go to the mountain alone. And can I just say, church, that corporate prayer has always been the pattern and the power of the church. Like you, you can pray on your own. You should. Matthew 6, Jesus talks about going into the secret place and praying. But I want you to know there's something powerful. There's a multiplying effect that happens when the church prays together. It's been the pattern of the church. In Acts chapter 2, Pastor Chris just mentioned earlier that, that next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. This past Thursday was the day of ascension. Forty days after Easter, Jesus ascended up to heaven and he told his disciples, it's recorded in Acts chapter 1 verse 4, don't leave, go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. We are right now in that 10 day period between the day of ascension and the day of Pentecost. And you know what they were doing? The Bible says in Acts chapter 2, they were all together in unity. They were praying on the day that the Spirit was poured out. And when you read the last part of that chapter, the, the Holy Spirit has fallen, Peter's preached, thousands have gotten saved. The Bible says in verse 42 of Acts 2, they, the church, the first century believers, devoted themselves to prayer. That was the culture of the church. Corporate prayer has always been the pattern and the power of the church. They met in the temple. They met in the homes. They prayed. In Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John were, were beaten and then released, you know what they did? They went and they gathered with the believers and they had a prayer meeting. That was their response to persecution. They prayed. In Acts chapter 6, they had the first church business meeting. The church was growing and all of a sudden they realized this thing's going to need some organization. Like, this get, like the wheels are getting cogged up here. And so they, they elected some leaders in the church to facilitate ministry. The reason was not just because, you know, we should let other people get involved, you know. No, the, the reason was because the apostles recognized that all of the, the, the organizational structure of the church was robbing them of what was most important. That's why in Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, they said, we're going to let these guys take on those jobs, and here's what we're going to do. We will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The apostles realized that there's nothing more important to us than spending time in God's presence and spending time ministering his word. They devoted themselves to it. When Peter and John were released from prison, they prayed. When Peter was later released from prison in Acts chapter 12, supernaturally in the middle of the night, an angel comes in, unlocks the door, takes him out. In fact, Peter thought he was dreaming. He didn't even know he was actually getting out of jail until he wakes up, kind of comes to himself in the middle of the street, in the middle of the night. He's like, wow, I'm out. So he, he, he decides to go to Mary's house. He goes to Mary's house. He knocks on the door. You know what he finds? He finds the church was having an all-night prayer meeting interceding for him to be delivered. They were doing what Moses did. They were standing in the gap. They were pulling out the big guns in prayer and saying, this is a battle. We got to go to God in prayer. We got to hold up our hands until we see deliverance. Prayer has always been the pattern and the power of the church. Centuries after this moment with Moses on the mountain, 
At about 590 BC, Israel was at a weak point as a nation. The Babylonian Empire was threatening. They were going to attack Jerusalem. They were going to destroy Judah. And internally, the Israelites were turning on themselves. The most vulnerable among them were being mistreated. Things were not good. And at this low point in Israel's history, God reports through the prophet Ezekiel. And this is what the Lord said in Ezekiel 22 and 30. God says, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. What a sad commentary. God's saying, I need a Moses. I, I need somebody to stand in the gap so that I don't have to destroy the land, but I found no one. Can I tell you, church, God is still looking for a people to stand in the gap. In our generation, he's looking for a people to stand in the gap. He's looking for a people to lift up their hands in faith and believe. To believe that God can bring about a victory. So as we get ready to close this service in a final time of prayer, I want to invite you one more time to stand with me all over this room. Paul the Apostle said this to Timothy, a young pastor in the church. He said, therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and disputing. Me too, Paul. Me too. Yeah, we could turn that phrase around as a positive statement and say, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands with love and unity. That's God's desire. Not, not that we're lifting up our fist in anger and disputing, but that there is a surrender, a meekness, a powerful, unified, collective agreement that the Lord is going to bring about the victory. I wonder if you would just join me in lifting your hands to the Lord today. Father, we lift up our hands to you. We lift up our hearts to you this day. God, as we stand in the gap, we stand in the gap for our families. Lord, we stand in the gap today for our loved ones. Lord, we stand in the gap today for, for this nation that is frantically looking for answers, looking for solutions. And, and there are experts around every corner and everyone has a thought. And everyone has an idea. And Lord, we've allowed that to even become our default response. We want to do all the things and say all the stuff and make sure we're on the right side of the aisle on whatever today's hot button issue is. But God, may we not pick right or left. May we stand in the gap. May we stand in the gap and make up the difference, God, on behalf of the land. God, would you find a people in our generation who would be interceding for your will to be done, for your kingdom to come in the earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray as David prayed in Psalm 141. He said, may my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. God, as we lift up our hands, may our prayers just arise like an aroma 
before your throne. God, may it be a sweet-smelling sacrifice as we lift our hands, as we lift our voices to you. God, would you bring about the victory? Lord, thank you today that you've given us the power in the name of Jesus that we have access through prayer to move heaven and earth. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. In Jesus' name, in all God's people said amen. Come on, let's bless the Lord one more time. Give him praise today. Amen. Lord, we worship you. We love you.